Hi, I'm Katie Burke, Associate Editor at American Scientist Magazine. Biologist Rob Dunn recently spoke at Sigma Psi headquarters, and I sat down with him afterward to discuss his new book, The Man Who Touched His Own Heart, which is about the evolutionary biology of that organ. Having enjoyed Rob's successful preceding book, The Wildlife of Our Bodies, I had many questions about how he had decided to write his next book and what his research and writing processes were like. I started by asking Rob how he ended up writing about the heart. So Rob, you're an ecologist and evolutionary biologist by training. You've written several books that reach far beyond those fields, the most recent of which is The Man Who Touched His Own Heart, which delves into medicine and human physiology. How did you get interested in this subject? So as an ecologist, one of the things I think about a lot is the interaction between um, different kinds of organisms. And for me, that's long been um, animal societies and the species that live with them and on them. And that eventually, like many um, social insect biologists, led me to humans. Um, and so it was in that context that I started writing about the interaction between humans and other species. And when I was doing that for the book, The Wildlife of Our Bodies, um, it became really clear to me that there were really basic aspects of how our bodies work that people didn't understand very well and where our understanding was really very recent. And, and so those stories of how we came to understand those parts of our bodies became fascinating to me. And, and the heart in particular sort of called out in as much as it's simultaneously central and one of these elements to our bodies that we really didn't understand at all um, you know, until a couple of hundred years ago. And then most of the work to understand how the heart works and how it varies from species to species and how it goes wrong has really been done in the last 50 years. And so that quest that um, is still only uh, partial just uh, captivated me and it was hard not to write about it. So you write in the introduction that when you were writing the book, uh, your mother was diagnosed with arrhythmia and had an extremely high heart rate. How did her diagnosis affect the writing of the book? Well, it was interesting. I mean, so I, um, so many people have heart problems. I mean, most of us will either face cancer or a heart problem, at least in the U.S. So it was um, almost inevitable that somebody I knew and loved would face some sort of heart problem while I was writing the book, but I didn't think it would be my mom. Um, and, and so, and I guess the short answer is that, you know, her struggles grounded my writing about the heart in, in, a, in the context of a really, a very immediate problem with great significance to me. And so, I mean, I think on the one hand, I'm fascinated by the big story of the heart, you know, how we studied it going back 2000 years, how our hearts relate to those of fish, all of these, these major sort of big abstract elements. And then the other hand, you know, you have my mom's heart. And so, um, you know, while much of the book is still about the big quest, um, it made me much more conscious of the more immediate quest, which is given the big story of the heart, how do we still deal with, you know, each of our individual hearts and their problems? We know much less than one would hope about the heart disease in an evolutionary context. And you know, in some ways it's not surprising because most of the work on hearts has been medical. It's been how to fix hearts once they're broken, once they're clogged, um, once they, you know, have uh, arrhythmias or other problems. And that's, you know, that 
that's our key focus because it's so immediate. Because like my mom's heart, you have a problem and you need to fix it. Um, but and, and we clearly need to do that medical work, but it needs to be balanced. And, and so just for context, you know, the big cardiology meeting in the US has tens of thousands of people. Last time I checked, it had 60,000 people. If you gathered all of the people who study the evolution of the heart in one room, you know, you wouldn't even have to worry about how to split the check. It'd be like 10 people. Um, and, and so the truth is we've left the understanding of the evolution of the heart to a really, really small, obscure tribe, given very, very small amounts of money. And every time that group does, figures something new about, out about the heart, it changes what we know about everything we're doing. And, and so I think there's a real need for much more context there. So tell me about Helen Tussig and her work on congenital heart deformities. So Tossig's an amazing character. So she spent um, she spent most of her life working with children with congenital heart deformities, and she wanted to be a surgeon. But at a time when, as a woman, she wasn't allowed into surgery, and what she was given as a task was to help the children who are beyond help. And and so it was really a, an awful you know, situation in her life because she was surrounded by children with congenital heart deformities who she knew would just die. And so as a measure of how extreme this situation was, there was a point in her career when uh, the heart problems associated with scarlet fever started to be treatable using the precursors to antibiotics. And so she started to treat children. Um, but immediately the, the the other doctors with whom she worked said, no, 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 now that that's treatable, we get to do that. You go back to the children beyond help. And so she then dedicated herself to helping those children. And, and one of the things that she would do was to help to pioneer one of the very first uh, surgical treatments for a congenital heart deformity that would go on to save hundreds of thousands of children and offer them complete lives. And that story in and of itself is, is a big and interesting story. Um, and she won every prize you could win and, and ushered in a new wave of, of, of work on the hearts of children. And then she retired. And that first story, that first part of her life leads up to about when she's 70. It is fascinating. It's enough for you know, any kind of hero we might imagine. But then in retirement, while living in a retirement home, she decided that she wanted to understand the evolution of hearts and the evolution of congenital deformities. And at this point in her life, which is the 1970s, uh, early 1980s, um, basically nothing was understood about congenital deformities in non-humans. And, and so when she looked to birds, the, the whole literature consisted of weird examples of broken hearts, you know? And so there was the pigeon with two hearts, the chicken with seven hearts. And, and so much so that, you know, she could write um, without anybody criticizing her that, well, we don't know if there are birds out there that have two hearts. And we know so little about these hearts comparatively, we still can't rule that possibility out. It's exceedingly unlikely, but I mean, who would know? N nobody. And so she started to work on these hearts to understand, you know, the evolution of hearts in general, but then also how they break. And she thought, well, how can I do that? There was no literature she could look to. There was no collection of the hearts of birds. And so she just set out systematically to find people who would give her dead birds, and then she dissected them. And so you can imagine her here. She, you know, she's in her late 70s and then early 80s, 
you know, with, with hands that have lost some of their finesse, dissecting the hearts of house sparrows. And she's dissecting one after the other because she not only has to see the hearts, but she has to dissect enough to see hearts with problems. And so she does this work for years, and she's so dedicated to it that she tells her friends, look, if I die, you've got to publish this paper. And then, then it happens. She gets into a car accident and dies. And, and her friends say, well, we're going to publish the paper. But when they do, they're careful to include a caveat to say that, well, Helen did this work. She dissected 5,000 bird hearts, spent years on it every day. She came at night to the lab, but she didn't really mean it as science. You know, it was just kind of a hobby thing. Um, and that's where this story ends because that paper, although it was published, although it in contained incredible insights, was never cited. And then separately, what happens is that a separate lab comes in to start to try to understand congenital deformities and is able to show that what, what Helen ultimately shows in this paper is that bird congenital deformities have shared aspects with mammals and different aspects. And that the shared aspects are ancient and that the different ones are new. And now developmental biologists have showed that she was right. And not only was she right, but she explained some of the phenomena that they couldn't understand. And so what she did was to suggest a way forward for a whole field of comparative study that's never happened. And so we still don't know very much about the hearts of birds or other mammals. We still don't know the extent to which what we see in human children, that whether those situations are unique to humans. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's this heroic story of what she did. On the other hand, there's this other heroic sto story of what we could do but have not yet done. And how did you how did you find her last paper? Well, I mean, it's out there published, and so when so, I guess I first saw it in one of the obituaries about her, and the obituary said, you know, Helen did all these great things. She you know accomplished everything you could hope to accomplish, and then oh by the way, she also kept busy when she was retired, um, and dissected a bunch of bird hearts. And to the the writer and me, you know, that was a uh, a key bit, right? That like that there's more to that story and. And so I then found the paper, and it turns out she'd also written a paper earlier about mammals. Um, and there it is. I mean, you can go find it. It's sitting in the literature. I think maybe it's been cited twice now, um, and once is in another obituary. Um, and, and it's like many of the big insights in biology. We, you know, nobody's, um, nobody's given it its weight yet. Nobody's given it the weight it deserves. Uh, and so it's hopefully some weight comes to it. So another interesting factoid that came out of this book that I had never heard before was that, you know, most animals get about a billion beats in their life and humans get way more heartbeats than most other animals. So can you talk about how you even started asking that question and then what you found out when you started looking? Yeah, so this is one of these things. I mean, one of the things about writing books um, is that almost inevitably it leads me to change what I'm doing research-wise, um, which my lab probably has grown to hate, but if they have, they haven't told me. Um, and, and in part because, you know, in writing about stories, you find these things that we think we know about but don't really. And one of them is about the relationship between um, heart rate and life expectancy. And so it's been known for a while that there is this relationship that you know, we think about dog years and human years that, you know, if you, uh, that somehow that we live at different rates and that that catches up with us. But we don't have a metric of that. But it turns out the heart's a pretty good metric. And that as we think about long and short lives, that organisms with slower heart rates live longer. Um, 
and it, it's a pretty consistent consistent length. And so although the shrew lives a very short life, it might just be 60 days, it gets about the same number of heartbeats as your dog. And, and so if we measure time in you know, our standard units, it looks really different. But if you measure time in heartbeats, it's just a life where everything's going fast. Um, and so that's interesting in and of itself. And then if we look at humans on that plot, it turns out that we now get um, about two and a half times as many heartbeats on average. And, and we've achieved those heartbeats because of public health, because of antibiotics and vaccines, um, but, but also because we've pushed off death due to heart disease. And so in a way, the extra heartbeats we get are a measure of, of a kind of progress. Um, and so I think one of the lessons from, from, from those extra heartbeats is that we, we do get these extra ones if we're lucky, and so, and so we ought to use them well. Um, but the other lesson is that in that plot in which we look at the, the relationship between heart rate and life expectancy for different animals, we've only really considered 20 or 25 different animals. And so what's going on with the rest of life? You know, there are 5,400 mammal species. How do they all fall on that? Are there other mammals that like us get more heartbeats? And what can we learn from them that might benefit us, that might get us a few more if we want to eke some out? And so that's the thing we're starting to study in the lab, which is to do more comparative work on heart rate and life expectancy to see if we can find this sort of fountain and youth um, in a groundhog or a ground squirrel. And conversely, to see if there are organisms that you know, don't get this many heartbeats. Who are the poor chumps who don't even get their billion? Um, and so we've started to do that comparative work and it's super fun because really we have no idea. So tell me about the ground squirrel's heart and how it fits into those questions. Yeah, so the ground squirrel's fascinating. So the, the earliest work that relates to ground squirrels is work done by Bigelow who was working with ground hogs. Um, and with ground hogs, he knew that they're, uh, in the winter their heart rate slowed down and he thought that he could find some chemical in uh, the groundhogs that helped to slow their hearts that might account for their longevity, but also be used clinically to slow human hearts. And so he thought he had it. For years, he, he had these giant facilities where he had hundreds of groundhogs, and he thought he had the compound. He called it hibernin. It was going to save humanity. And it turned out to be a plastic from one of his tubes that he was using in, in his lab. Um, that sure enough, it did slow heart rate, but in exactly the way you would expect plastic to do it. Um, and, and so then that work died uh, and nobody followed up on it. And unbeknownst to him, and now that he's dead, totally unbeknownst to him, uh, a group in Alaska started to work on ground squirrels and ground squirrels like woodchucks, groundhogs, hibernate and slow their hearts down. And the group in Alaska has been able to show that there is a magical compound like hibernin um, and it's adenosine, and that's what the ground squirrels use to slow their hearts down. Um, and the other things happen in their body too at the same time, but the researchers can actually slow and speed up a, a ground squirrel just by um, using this compound. Well, it turns out that we actually use this compound clinically, that it's used to slow really rapid heart uh, rates like my mom had um, you know, in the lab, but we had no idea that in using it, we were co-opting what biology already does. Um, and, and so I think there's a really interesting lesson there. That's one species we've studied. We found this compound. You know, what if there are 20 other species out there who figured out ways to live really long? What other things could we learn there? And we have no idea. 
So one of the things I love about this book and some of your other publications is that you ask interdisciplinary questions, that you find um, questions from ecology or evolutionary biology that have big implications for other applications. Uh, what is your process for coming up with research questions and how would you advise a student learning to do research? So that's a good question. So I, I mean, I think that um, somebody who, who's lost their mind uh, and thinks that they've discovered the key to saving humanity and somebody at the edge of a field discovering something new are often very similar. Um, and, and, and so one must be cautious in trying to open up big new holes among fields uh, because it's hard to tell between madness and insight. Um, and I say this because I think it's hard in writing about things as well. It's hard to look at somebody like Helen Tossig who you know, dissects all of these bird hearts and, and figure out if she's lost it in age or if she's onto it. Um, and yet I do think predictably at the edges of fields, um, in those places where when you ask people a lot of questions about something and they seem to think that somebody else knows, that those are places where, where as a writer, I know to look for stories. I know to look for those few people that have kind of pushed that edge out to see how far it goes. And so I would say as a student, I think you have to start your career as a student by assuming that most of what you think people know, nobody knows. And then to figure out if somebody knows, because if you just assume that nobody knows, um, you know, you're going to go off arrogant and wrong half the time. But if you assume nobody knows and then carefully look to see if somebody knows, you know, maybe you'll find somebody who's poked a little bit toward that edge and you can look for what might be new. And, and here, a story of one of my friends I think is indicative. So Bill Parker at Duke Medical Center, a few years ago, and to cut a long story short, was working on the human immune system and, and came to the idea that maybe the appendix was doing something totally different. Now, that's a wild and ridiculous thing because clearly we've studied the appendix for years and we know that it doesn't do anything. But as Parker started to, to think about his new idea, he started to probe the literature. And what he saw was that people hadn't figured out the appendix. Instead, they just kind of ignored it and they'd ignored it for a century. And so that gave him more confidence to think, well, maybe I'm not right, but, but maybe I could keep pursuing this to see if something interesting is there. And, and so long story short, Parker, I think it's fair to say at this point, discovered that the appendix serves an important role as a storehouse for good bacteria so that if you get a gut infection, your good bacteria are wiped out that can be recolonized. And this idea has since found quite a lot of support. But what it took in order to do that was to, kn to know the literature really well, to assume that people didn't know, and then to follow up uh, obsessively to figure out what else was done or not done. And that what a writer needs to do is very similar. But the writer has the benefit of being able to do this, you know, with a thousand different topics. Um, and so that's the fun part about my writing life. You know, I could never work on as many things as I get to write about. But I do get to follow those threads and try to figure out if they're madness or, or uh, you know, intense insight. And sometimes I'm wrong as the writer, right? But um, it's fun either way.
Rob Dunn, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Uh, the Man Who Touched His Own Heart came out in early February. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I produced this Pizza Lunch podcast as associate editor of American Scientist magazine, which is published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Ardent Octopus, courtesy of Medios Musicali.